Following this service, you are invited to a committal service at the Mount Pleasant Cemetery here in Houghton. And following the committal, the family would be honored for you to join them for a light luncheon in the church community room. If you would like to stay for the luncheon and are not going to the cemetery, you can go right over to the community room and wait for the family and others after the committal. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of hell and death. Because I live, you also shall live. We have gathered here today to praise God and to witness our faith as we celebrate the life of Rosalind Lorraine Ballard Danner. We come together to acknowledge God's grace in our lives and to acknowledge our grief at this time of human loss. During this hour, may God search each of our hearts that in pain we may find comfort and sorrow, hope in death. Resurrection.
It's been my honor to know Bob and Rosalind, I think since 1983. I started dating, or at least falling in love with their daughter, and then dating, and then getting married, and being an honor of being a part of this family. Their faith has been displayed through the love that they've showed to their children and to each other. And Bob, these last five years, as much as I've ever seen a husband love a wife, you have loved Rosalind supremely. I'm honored to read her favorite psalm, Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me upon a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my my enemies around me, and I I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. The word of the Lord. It is my privilege to be here this morning and to offer a tribute to my friend Rosalind Danner. I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I want you to look around a little bit. You are all immortals. Rosalind, Rosalind is immortal. She is with our God. She is with her Lord. Rosalind Danner, who was she in the context of this community? How did we, outside of her immediate family, experience her as a person? That's a formidable task for any of us who knew Rosalind, the person to address. 
Each of us has different memories and experiences of Rosalind. As many of you who pass through Rosalind's life at different stages think of her right now, your thoughts may not be adequate, adequately represented by mine, but I trust many of you will find resonance with me. First and foremost for me, Rosalind was a mentor. When Daryl and I moved to Houghton in 1982, Bob and Rosalind were part of the administration of the college. Both of us had loved this place as students, but had to transition to being on the teaching end of things. We looked around us for people who could model our new roles well. It didn't take long for Rosalind to stand out to me as a woman who seemed to know how to conduct herself well in public while being an administrative spouse, a student again after already having earned a baccalaureate degree and an RN, and the mother of four whose younger children were not much older than our oldest son. She was a gracious hostess too, which became for me especially an important quality to emulate. I remember being invited to see the new addition and kitchen renovation uh, to the York House in the early 90s and thinking a lot about all the effort Rosalind had put into the design, which predated Fixer Upper and all the digital media options available to all of us today. It was stunning to me. I really got to know Rosalind when the Houghton Church transitioned from Sunday evening services to uh, small groups in 2000. Bob and Rosalind joined a small group which we hosted in our home. Although some members came and went over the years, Bob and Rosalind remained steadfast in their attendance until about three or four years ago when her condition had deteriorated enough to make it difficult for them to attend. Rosalind always made a point of thanking me for my, and she'd always say, gracious hospitality. And I felt like, wow, you shouldn't be thanking me. You modeled gracious hospitality for me. That meant a lot coming from one whom I had always considered the hostess with the mostess. She repeatedly affirmed my gifts, which were actually more fully formed under her gracious modeling. Our small group continues to meet and has continued to pray for our dear friends, Bob and Rosalind, during the difficult years of Rosalind's decline. The last time I remember thinking, Rosalind remembers me, was last fall as we celebrated her birthday. She looked well that evening, as I recall, and her eyes seemed to say, I know you and I care for you. Because I came to know Rosalind during the second half of her Houghton life, I had to ask her dear friend, Kathy Brenneman, who's sitting right about midway up the center there, uh, for some help in fleshing out Rosalind the person. Kathy reminded me that Rosalind was a bit of a paradox at times. She thought of herself as an introvert, yet she was often invited to give talks to women's groups. She also enjoyed pranks among friends. Kathy references the great Danner Brenneman pig jokes, which originated with Tim Nichols, whom I also see here this morning, Bruce's nephew. First, 
the large plywood Christmas pig in Brenneman's yard with a lighted outline drawn by Rosalind. Next, the fetal pig from the Houghton Bio Lab that Kathy had delivered with Big Al's help on a silver-domed platter enhanced within by endive. Now picture this. And the obligatory oral cavity crab apple. A couple of college men knocked on Danner's door and literally trumpeted the special delivery of this portentous porcine delicacy. <laughs> what a surprise that Rosalind and Bob froze the Christmas pig and took it to the Brenneman home at the time of a graduation party the following spring <laughs> and placed a sign next to it saying, I thawed I was invited. <laughs> Kathy described Rosalind as a connoisseur of beauty, especially when it concerned art. She encouraged her friends, Bruce and, Bruce and Kathy, on several occasions to join her and Bob on trips to art museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and the Cleveland Museum of Art. For about 15 years, Kathy and Rosalind met at the college gym at 10 p.m. I can't even conceive of that. I'm an early morning person. Uh, to walk and solve the world's problems and laugh together. They were both night owls. They found each other. That was great. Many people may not realize how much time Rosalind spent on her art and sharing it with the rest of us in very practical ways. The drawing of this church on the bulletin each week and on your program this morning, I might add, was done by Rosalind. She also drew a lovely collage of college buildings, prints of which have been gifted to many alumni who support the college. Kathy remembers Rosalind saying, you never really know a building till you draw it. Rosalind was a member of the college committee tasked with helping design the most recent Wesley Chapel update, which was probably 12 or 14 years ago, but don't hold me to that. She was unhappy about leaving the side walls beneath the large, large windows as they were. The architect had called for trim panels that did not deliver the desired effect Rosalind had envisioned. She decided to consult Daryl, my husband, probably on the fly after small group one Sunday evening as she and Bob would often linger a bit to visit with us and ask him to take a look and give her some feedback. I recall that Daryl was rather surprised and pleased that she would seek his counsel on an aesthetic building issue. After Daryl offered three different mock-ups the next day, Rosalind made the additional trim happen and was quite pleased with the outcome all behind the scenes in her quiet way. That's my version of the story. Some of you may have something else to add to that. Take a careful look the next time any of you attends a concert in Wesley Chapel and remember that Rosalind made that side trim happen the way it is. We will miss you, Rosalind, but how appropriate that we should be remembering you and your life, well-lived during this holiest of weeks, on the day we celebrate before our Savior's resurrection, the day of peace and quiet, your hope, now your reality and ours, is embodied in Easter. We celebrate both as we gather today.
Thank you, Rosalind, for being my friend. that I can make it through this. <laughs> Trying to encapsulate someone's life in just a few words is pretty much impossible. What I'm hoping to do is tell a few stories to give you a glimpse of who mom was and the impact she had on other people, especially me. For some of you who have known me for many years, you may forget that I did not grow up here, although I've done a lot of growing up here. As a military kid, Yorkwood was the ninth house I called home. Mary Beth and Dave have a higher count. Even though we tended to move every two years or so, Mom still made our quarters a home. She painted, or more often in Army quarters, stripped paint. I remember how frustrated she was when she found the walnut mantelpiece or the brass fixtures, or even the glass in the kitchen had been painted. As the old army expression goes, if it moves, move it. If it moves on its own, salute it. If you can't move it, paint it. Boy, did we find that to be the case. Because I had not known anything else, I did not note it as a child. But one fact now amazes me. My mother planted things. Even though we were only there for a short time, even though we did not even own the house, she planted roses, irises, daffodils, whole vegetable gardens, and even shrubs. She wanted this place to be a home, not just where we lived for X number of months. Mom loved to cook. And she made sure that we were adventurous eaters. Try it, even if it's only a bite. Foods that seemed strange at first became regular staples. I remember spaghetti vongole. How many of you know what that is? Artichokes, Swedish meatballs, and once something that I thought awfully funny as an elementary kid, peanut soup. Mom was a stickler for table manners, including uh, what you could and couldn't talk about at the table. The unappetizing and especially bathroom talk was banned. If you broke the rule, you were rewarded by Mom's intense whisper of your name. Nathan! Egregious offenses led to the use of your full name with middle name. I remember a time at West Point when, for a few months, it was a relatively regular occurrence for mom to buy Cornish hens for each of us. She made these into special occasions, usually served on Sunday for dinner, and we were expected to be on our best behavior. Even though it was just us, she made us feel that she was putting on a special event which made us each feel important. I remember a couple of times Mom's love for wordplay and cooking came together when she was the hostess for dinner parties called Silly Suppers. 
In these, the meals are served in courses which are completely cleared after each, and the menu items are riddles. Everything, including utensils, was on the menu. So, you may get soup, but no spoon. Or, of course, where you get only utensils and no food. I remember the laughter that ensued as people coped with their orders at each course. I remember growing up in a house where weekly Bible studies were a regular occurrence. After the Bible study, coffee and dessert were always part of the fellowship afterwards. On those days, Mom would guard the desserts from grubby tasters with, Don't touch that! It's for Bible study. As an adult, I would tease her when dessert was available at her house. May I have some of this, or is it for Bible study? She would tease me back and say, Well, I hope I haven't scarred you for life. Mom had an internal standard for what was right in the world. Everything from when a painting was complete to the condition of our yard. When things did not meet her standards, she tended to want to fix them immediately. I believe all four of us have memories of Mom straight from church, hauling a branch or pruning or the like, with her purse over her arm. When a job was more than she could handle, she had a habit I found exceptionally annoying as a child of starting a project and leaving it intentionally undone. Everyone had to walk around it or finish what she started. This was her way of silently adjusting our worldview to hers. Mom always had an artist's perspective. She had increasing training and skill as she grew older, but the world was never ordinary to her. She saw beauty in everything. She would point out flaws in common knowledge about how everyone knows things look. Look at that so-called black cloud. Really look. There isn't a bit of black in there. There's blue, maybe a bit of gray, some green. Looking at some skies, she'd say, if I painted it like that, people would say I did it wrong. Looking at sunsets, she would say, some people say that God isn't an abstract artist. As a nurse turned artist, she would point out things about anatomical proportions. She'd say, now look at this face. No, the eyes are almost exactly vertically centered. That is right. Most people draw a face like they imagine, with eyes on top like a frog. She would often say, beauty is an innate part of God's nature is the flower that lives and dies on the top of a mountain without any human eye seeing it any less beautiful? Why else would God put it there but that it brings him joy? When mom decided to seriously pursue her art career and went back to get her art degree here at Houghton, I was a high school student with a bedroom right near her studio. I became her de facto critic. I don't mean this in a negative way. I didn't, and I didn't volunteer, but I did enjoy it. You could tell when mom wasn't ready for a critique because she was in her right mind. 
just a second. My papers are sticking together here. Those who study brain physiology will know what I mean. When mom was fully invested in a project, you could walk into a room, you could even talk to her, and she wouldn't have any idea that anyone had arrived. On the other hand, if something was bothering her about a piece, like the vent at the top of Wesley Chapel Portico in a painting, it was, was it out of proportion? And was frustrated talking to, uh, frustrating with talking to herself, she'd find me, Nathan, look at this. What's wrong with it? I would give her my honest opinion. Sometimes she would say, no, it isn't that. But often the answer was, oh, that's it. Or, oh, you're right, but I hadn't noticed that, but that's not what I'm, what's bothering me. <laughs> when there was an issue that was particularly tough, she would take the work and turn it upside down on the easel and step back. She always told me that kept your brain from imagining what you should see so that you can see what is actually there. Rather than Wesley Chapel, you see a building where there's an enormous vent in the middle of the portico. I remember, I remember mom laughing at her mistake, and she said, if the vent were that big, it would be something like eight feet tall. Sometimes the idea behind a, a work did get in the way. Using her prized portable easel, which folds up to look like a wooden briefcase, she spent several days on the Houghton ski slope doing an oil painting of the valley. She completed the painting and had it framed. She liked the cute little brick building, which made a bright spot of contrasting color. It had been hanging up in the house for some time when someone pointed out that that was the sewage treatment plant. <laughs> I came home one day to find that painting back on the easel and that cute little building painted out. <laughs> she said it was an artist's prerogative. <laughs> Similar to our dinner table rules, she couldn't get beyond what it really was. After moving to Houghton and living here for several years, mom and dad got the moving itch. Let me explain. This is not some sort of skin condition. When you're in the military for so many years, certain tendencies and habits get ingrained. My parents did not want to move from here, but in their married life, they had never lived in one place for this long. They had an uh, inexplicable desire to pack or unpack or move boxes or similar activities this itch was metaphorically scratched when a new family, I believe it was the Dowdens, uh, had car trouble and couldn't meet their moving van. Mom and Dad snapped into action, and experience of several moves came into play, and the house was filled, and the van was emptied in short order. After that, the moving itch seemed to be satisfied. <laughs> At the beginning, when Mom's dementia began to manifest itself, we had no idea that our lives would be turned upside down. But through this trial, the ministry that God orchestrated among the caregivers, starting with my daughter Courtney, 
grew into a grew into a small new adopted extension to the Danner family. This upended our lives, like the paintings on Mom's easel, and gave us a new perspective on God's grace. Proverbs 31:28 says, "Her children arise and call her blessed." I will add my paraphrase. Her children rise up and call us blessed. Thank you.
I just have a few things to say about my mom. Please bear with me, the scroll feature quit on my phone. So I had to resort to old school. The bounty of God's goodness through a mother's love. Some of you are quicker picker-uppers. Here are just a few words to describe the woman you know as Rosalind Danner and I know as mom. Pets. As I remember growing up, we always had pets. Mom and dad never seemed to take issue with having pets. In fact, I think mom's love for animals gave her the opportunity to teach us to care for something other than ourselves. This happened despite the stubbornness of the dachshund breed not wanting to go outside on a cool rainy day and frustrating dad to no good end. We also had cats. Dad, trying to accommodate the independence of cats, thought it would be a great idea to put a pet door in one of our basement windows to let the cats come and go. This worked fine until a neighbor cat decided to follow our cat into the house one night and have a battle royale underneath mom and dad's bed in the middle of the night. There's more to this story, but I'll have to leave it there. Language. Mom's love of the English language was contagious. Nathan referred to her love of planting plants, but she also planted within us seeds of the love of language and vocabulary. I have beautiful memories of her reading to us as we traveled towards family vacations. One year, she introduced us to C.S. Lewis' Narnia series as we stepped through the wardrobe and enjoyed the trip to our vacation destination. I also remember silliness with words and names and great laughter at the humor of phonetics within the English language. Her humor taught us not to always take life so seriously and to enjoy one another's company. For the past two years, I've been working in the funeral business. Recently, I served a family at the passing of Mr. Dunn. I imagine mom's laughter at the greeting of him at the pearly gates. Well done, Dunn. (laughs) Scrabble, need I say more. I loved a good Scrabble game with mom. Humor or wit. We have a phrase in our family that refers to the humor we enjoy. We call it Danner humor. We get it from both parents, so it rightfully should be called Ballard Danner humor. She loved a great pun or a silly verse. I remember many moments of laughter in our household. That taught us to enjoy our lives and to enjoy one another. Jeopardy. Mom was a protector. She was always attuned to our safety. I remember once when we lived in Kansas while Dad was at Fort Leavenworth, not doing time. (laughs) The (laughs) The tornado sirens went off in the middle of the night. Dad was not home at the time, and I remember my pregnant mom getting three slumbering kids down to the basement as the back door blew open. Later in my childhood, I remember the game show Jeopardy becoming one of Mom's favorite shows. 
I never felt my life was in jeopardy around mom unless I interrupted the show. <laughs> I think dad has caught the jeopardy fever also. Aesthetics. Mom had a keen eye for beauty and also for visual distraction. In a world desensitized to the value of true beauty, pure beauty, not superficial beauty, she had the ability to discern. Her attention to detail was contagious. I know, I've been accused of it myself. She had a stubborn finesse that would wait for the proper timing and opportunity to fix something she thought needed fixing. And oftentimes it would make the world better, not for just her, but for all of us. One quote found on her dresser states, content thyself to be obscurely good. Indeed she was, and in the process, she taught us to love one another. I want to express my sincere and deep gratitude to the caregivers, prayer warriors, and community of faith that helped sustain both mom and dad during the recent years. Last year when mom was still able to vocalize some of her thoughts, she told dad she wanted me to write two paragraphs telling her how I was doing. At that time I was navigating a deep valley and didn't want to burden her with my troubles. I didn't get those paragraphs written. Mom, I hope these six words will suffice. It is well with my soul. Arrivederci, Mama. Throughout our lives, our mother taught us about beauty. She taught us how to stop and see it. Like her enjoyment of seeing the mountain vistas on a trip to Colorado when I was seven. It made me question, what is beauty? What did she see that I didn't see? What makes it beautiful? Like soaking in Italy's art till my dad and I were starving and she was saying, art is my food. <laughs> she knew the beauty of motherhood. Like talking dad into a fourth child. <laughs> like a very early memory I have of sitting on her lap and snuggling up against her, my beautiful mom was wearing a soft, bright red sweater and singing, You Are My Sunshine. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. 
Like sitting by my bed after my back surgery. Like sitting by my bed after my eye surgeries. Telling me, no one will love your baby like you, Amy. Like when I was expecting my first child, she sat beside me in the bathroom when I had morning sickness. And she said, it will all be worth it. Having the love and strength to leave me with my firstborn, to learn to mother on my own. Like the day I brought home my first baby from the hospital, and she confidently took him into her arms and demonstrated how to care for a newborn. It was as if, without words, she was saying, here's how you do it. You can be a mom, too. Like her excitement and anticipation to meet the child God gave me in my old age. Like occasionally receiving a little piece of paper on my bed when I was a teenager that simply said, I love you. And her love was fierce, and she told us hard things when we needed it, like, Amy, the world doesn't revolve around your belly button. <laughs> like when my teenage sassiness got the better of me, and it came out in the kitchen one night, and I received her strong rebuke. Motherhood was such an essential part of who she was that even in her dementia, she worried that I would leave Gilbert with her and ask her to breastfeed him. <laughs> Mostly we remember being loved, unconditionally loved. She loved her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren deeply, and they all know it. And while we are on the topic of those whom she loved, our mom loved our dad. On a day not too long ago, I sat next to her as she looked up at him with those eyes, and I asked her, you love that man, don't you? Her eyes got big, and she responded as if she was redeclaring her wedding vows, I do. She taught us the beauty of friendship and hospitality. She told me the only way to have a friend is to be one. She encouraged me to select a spouse who was a friend and like me because being male and female is enough of a difference. <laughs> she would turn a family dinner for six into a dinner for seven because of an unexpected guest by cutting up the six pork chops into pieces so it wouldn't look obvious to each person that to the guests that each person was giving up a portion of their meat. With the instructions, FHB, family hold back. <laughs> but don't ever put the salad dressing bottle or the actual butter container on the table. <laughs> we had to set the table every evening properly, even if it was just us. Hardly ever making anything from a box or only ever making her own pie crust, even when her kitchen was about four feet by eight feet. She was always trying something new. One summer, we had a luau in our backyard when I was six. What fun for a little kid. It was my first taste of artichokes. It seemed very exotic. 
She taught us the beauty of caregiving. My mom was a hero. Her skill as a nurse allowed her to literally save a little boy's life right outside of our home because of a, a severe head injury from a sledding accident. She rushed to the doctor with a stonemason who crushed his hand while working on our home. We watched her faithfully and lovingly care for her mother for 15 years in the nursing home. Now, being the recipient of caregiving, though she might not have been aware of it, she had to learn how to receive care, which was difficult for her. She taught us to marvel at the beauty of creativity. Being my private professor through the cathedrals and museums of Europe, so much whispering in my ear. She was always looking at our surroundings and imagining how to make it more beautiful. A tree here, a flowering shrub there. She taught me to cook. She taught me how to sew. She showed us the beauty of redemption. Of course, just like all of us, she was wounded and broken. She unexpectedly lost her father when she was 20 years old and had a fear of losing people she loved. This would manifest itself like this. Giving me the silent treatment when we moved away from Houghton. She was a worrier. But now that we are adults, we recognize this as originating in her love for us. As she became aware that her dementia would eventually take her away, her ability to make amends, she began confessing her faults and failures. Most important of all, she taught us the beauty of Jesus. She documented my coming to Jesus moment in a letter to her mom, and I keep that letter in my Bible. She gave me my first real Bible that I use to this day, the cover was red. It's been recovered. I recovered it in red. And this, in demonstrating her love for puns, she told me, all Bibles should be read. <laughs> Recently, as I was going through her things, I realized that her Bible was read too. <laughs> through our mom, we learned that beauty doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be a simple gesture. Like a small vase of flowers or a well-written note, or a beautiful pie, and, and a, necessity a necessity for every human soul. story that 
I know that I speak for Bob and the entire family in expressing gratitude to you for being here today.
These gatherings are not easy, but they are important. Among other things, they remind us that we are interconnected to each other. We care for each other, we support each other, we love each other. And of course, this care and support and love didn't start when we entered this place today. For this family, as you heard mentioned from a few of the family members, it has been going on for some time. And they are very grateful. Earlier this week, Bob sent me a note asking if I would read it today as an expression of his gratitude. I was determined to keep Rosalind from being committed to a nursing home, but this could not be a singular effort. I could not have reached this goal had it not been for a significant group of caregivers who committed themselves wholeheartedly, selflessly, graciously, and generously to make that goal a reality. There will never be enough words or actions of gratitude to adequately say thank you to these eight. Courtney Danner Meyer, Becky Hutton, Kelly Smith, Crystal Von Buren, Jenna Bentley, Raquel Acevedo, Bethany Elliott, Sahara Javiner. Beyond that, there are the supporters who prayed, brought food, visited, called, and generally let me know that they cared and were supporting us throughout this process. Too many to name for fear of missing someone in the process, but nonetheless magnificently important in making my goal a reality. Blessings on you, dear people of Houghton, Houghton Church, and others. Bob. I have always been intrigued a bit by Rosalind's interest in Noah's Ark. It seems to have started years ago when she viewed some comic strips about Noah's Ark and she collected them into a scrapbook. If you were at the funeral home yesterday for the visitation, the scrapbook was there. From that, she began collecting things related to Noah's Ark. And when people found out that she was collecting these things, they began to give her things. And uh, until she got to the point where she has shelves of things related to Noah's Ark and a rack full of books maybe 50, 60, maybe more books all about Noah's Ark. I remember when she did the art show at the library in Wellsville, the four paintings that she titled Jokes Played on Noah were four of my favorites. And they mixed both beauty and her sense of humor. You know, Noah's Ark is an interesting story. One of my professors told us that when you examine it and think it through, it's a rather frightening story. He said that actually it's one of many Bible stories that maybe we shouldn't even tell our children. Because when you stop and think about it, it's a story of wickedness and evil, of sin and destruction, of wrath and judgment. And in a sense, he's right. But there is a sense, with all due respect, in which he's wrong. Because the point of the story is not really the sin and the wickedness and the wrath and the judgment. It's actually a story of hope and of life. It's a story of death, but even more, it's a story of resurrection. The story that starts in the sixth chapter of Genesis can't truly be understood until you get to the ninth chapter of Genesis. It's in the ninth chapter of Genesis 
as the waters have abated and Noah and his family have stepped once again onto dry ground, that God says to him, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. It seems to me that the rainbow is the center of the story. The rainbow is the symbol of God's promise to be present in the world. And where God is present, there is always hope and life. There is always flourishing and beauty. It's God's presence that enables us to appreciate his creation, to see beauty and to create beauty, both of which Rosalind had a gift for doing. In fact, you, you see at the end of the obituary that's printed in your bulletin, when asked about her talents, she said in essence that she had the gift to see beauty and to help others see beauty as well. As the family was putting together this service, that idea of seeing beauty was at the forefront of all of the way in which the service was created and put together. I suspect that in one way or another, Rosalind probably helped you see beauty. She certainly did that for me in the various ways in which we worked together through the years. One of the ways was in her many years of service as a trustee here in this church. She was the first woman in this church to serve in that role. Mike Walters, who was the pastor here when she was first elected, said to me this week, Rosalind joining the trustees was a game changer. That board was never to be the same after that. And it's true. I'm thinking from that time onward, there's always been at least one woman on the trustees, and that is true. And she held her own with some pretty strongly opinionated men on that board. Her aesthetic sense was impeccable. Best of all, she just saw things differently than the men in the room. She was invaluable. He said, I truly valued her for so many reasons, but her service as a trustee was unforgettable. And I found that true myself. She had unique insights. She brought presence of class and style, always reminding us of the importance of not only what we did, but how we did it. Because as she and I discussed numerous times, when we see and create beauty, we are engaging and reflecting the heart of God who creates and redeems, which is so much of what the rainbow and this particular weekend is about. This weekend is one of those moments when we celebrate God's great promises. This particular day, referred to by some as Silent Saturday, might be the most appropriate day of the year to have a funeral. Because on this day, we are between the events of the cross and the resurrection. And in that, in that middle point, there is the tension and paradox and anticipation of death and life. And the gathering at the death of a Christian is always a day of tension and paradox and anticipation. We grieve death. We lament our loss We refuse to act like it isn't real because it is real. All you have to do is walk into Yorkwood House and you know it's real. 
It's painful. It's deep. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our hope is also real. And we embrace it and we proclaim it and we celebrate it. And tomorrow morning, we and people all over the world are going to gather and proclaim, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And when we do that, we're not pretending that death isn't real or isn't painful. We're declaring that because of the empty tomb, the reality of death is not the end. That the pain of death is not the last word. And I think that's God's message in the rainbow. When I was four years old, my uncle came to our house for a visit. He loved music. All of our family loved music. And he brought with him his most recent purchase. He pulled out a record album. Some of you remember those. He put it on the record player. Some of you remember those. And he placed the needle on that vinyl recording of Mahalia Jackson's album, Great Getting Up Morning. And I immediately fell in love with that album. I would dance around the house singing at the top of my lungs. In fact, I loved it so much that when my uncle left a few days later, he gave me the album. My favorite was the last song on the first side. It was a song that Miss Jackson herself wrote. And the lyrics really aren't complex or complicated. They're actually quite simple, and yet there is a profoundness to them. God put a rainbow in the sky, a rainbow in the sky, a rainbow in the sky. God, he put a rainbow in the sky, a rainbow in the sky. When it looked like the sun wasn't going to shine anymore, God, he put a rainbow in the sky. I've been thinking a lot about that song this week. As a four-year-old dancing around our living room, I didn't really understand the implications of those words. But now many years later, I do, or at least I think I'm starting to. When everything looked dark, when all seemed lost, when it appeared that the emptiness and the pain would never end, God made a promise. He put a rainbow in the sky. And that rainbow is an image that stretches to some slaves in Egypt and some exiles in Babylon and to a brutal cross on a darkened hillside and to a funeral service in a little hamlet in western New York. And that rainbow is visualized in the parting of a sea, in the migration home of his people, in an empty tomb, And of the promise of eternal life for a beloved child named Rosalind. The promise of that rainbow is as much ours as it is Noah's. It's hope in our loneliness. It's strength in our weakness. It's life in our death. And it's why even in grief... We trust and believe for Rosalind and for us. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. The one who redeems and restores and loves 
and gives life. And whatever your thoughts about God are today, you need to know that he loves you and he cares for you and he offers hope to you in Jesus. My prayer is that every time you see a rainbow, every time you see something about Noah's ark, you will give thanks for the hope of life that is ours in Jesus. For Rosalind, for you, for me, for the whole world. And that you will know that hope and live in that hope even today. Amen. Please pray with me. Compassionate and loving God, you are always present with us. So in the time of our sorrow and grief, we turn to you, our creator, the giver of all life. May our souls find rest and comfort in you. May the words of scripture we have heard cause us to think deeply, to realize our own frailties, and remember the promise that you are our light, our salvation, and our stronghold, so that we need not fear anyone or anything. We are so grateful, O God, for the life of Rosalind. We are aware of what she has meant to her family, this church, this community, and of her devotion to you and things worthwhile throughout all the years of her life. We sorrow, but with hope in our hearts because of your promises to us. Help us to trust that your faithful presence will guide us through our years and bring us at last with them into the joy of our eternal home through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.